Allies, book readers, embrace your passion. Read on, read on, till COVID's done. Then let's go down the pub. Welcome yet again to Burley Fisher's Isolation Station. It's been a long time now. It's, it's starting to, the walls are starting to close in a little bit. But to brighten your day a little bit, we have some more premium content for you. I'm joined today yet again by the infatigable So Mayor. Hi, So. Hi, the very fatigable So Mayor, <laughs> but fight, fighting it um, because this. Uh, was a conversation that I could just not resist having the chance mm. to have uh, for this podcast. Um, I'm so excited for everyone to hear it. Yeah, it's like some serious praxis goes down in the next half hour or so, and people are going to come out with bigger brains than when they entered, I think. Yeah, bigger brains and bigger hearts, both yeah, of them. Yeah, yeah. The yeah, great yeah. thing about our guest today, who is Lola Olufemi, the author of Feminism Interrupted, Disrupting Power, is that the head, the heart, the hands, all working together. Yeah, She is a writer and organiser, and I think it really shows in her writing, which is not just head stuff, it's really mm -hmm. coming from a community, and it was really fascinating mm. to talk to her about that community and about how it's holding together right now yeah she's certainly not an armchair revolutionary that's for that's for sure that is <laughs> for sure so some of you might um, know her from her first book uh, which she co-authored for verve poetry press which press which was called a fly girl's guide to university being a woman of color at cambridge and other institutions of power and elitism um mm -hmm. which just broke open a very secretive world and democratized yeah. access to it amazingly yeah I, I remember that happening at the time actually there was some really important conversations started happening that had been in the shadows beforehand so yeah she's it's an amazing conversation you got you guys are really gonna love it and i think without further ado let's hand over to so and lola Welcome back to Burley Fisher's Isolation Station. I am here in the ether uh, with Lola Onufemi, the author of Feminism Interrupted. It's a glorious sunny day outside and we're going to, I think, try and bring some of that energy and inspiration for change and renewal into this conversation, I hope. <laughs> yeah, me too. Welcome to Burley Fisher's Isolation Station, Lola. First of all, congratulations on um, Feminism Interrupted, which was published uh, on the 22nd of March, is that right? On the 20th of March. 20th of March. Um, and how has it been bringing a book into this strange new reality? Um, I think 
it, it's yeah it is a strange time to be publishing but also a strange time to I guess be attempting to like think about the book as like a marketing object so sure. being like oh like buy my book in, in these like strange times and everything is like really precarious and uncertain but I think that um a lots of the themes in the book speak to what a lot of what people are feeling now and especially I think obviously th- this whole period is going to radicalize a lot of people or, or at least get them to think more critically about the way that we live in a way that they've never been invited to or forced to before and I think that the book what what the book is trying to do is is to make an argument to those kinds of people in a way that doesn't that's not patronizing and then and in a way that takes seriously the complexity of the issue at hand the issue being um feminism and and feminist thinking and so in a way like leading people to a kind of text that asks them to expand their imaginations and to think beyond the given to think beyond um, what we're told is possible for our lives and the society that we live in and the kind of society that we want. Um, yeah, it, it, there, there's a lot of alignment there in a way. That's, I think that's absolutely, um, that's absolutely true. That was absolutely my experience of, of reading the book and reading it in parallel with reading um, information articles online about how um, much of what is being portrayed as a neutral health crisis is Mm. really a disaster created by austerity and created by a legacy of racist and imperial policies and one of the things that really struck me about the book was how you at one and the same time explore and explain how all of these issues are interconnected and that part of what feminism is is a theory a tool for seeing the interconnections between austerity between colonialism between trans misogyny and islamophobia so looking at that bigger picture and then just the clarity of organization Mm. of the book and I was wondering if you could say a little bit about how you decided how you saw what most needed to be talked about Mm. and how you laid it out so at one and the same time we feel all these distinct issues and feel the interconnections between them I think actually thinking about what I was going to write about was perhaps the easiest part of it because being part of kind of organizing circles and having done organizing outside and inside institutions when I got the chance to write this book I really wanted to talk about the things that we talk about which is which are the themes that come up continually in the book so things like transmisogyny things like austerity um the state reproductive justice those to me seem like the clearest ways to make an overall case about what feminism can help us do as a theoretical framework and as a theoretical tool so i wanted i wanted obviously you know in an 150 page book there's there's absolutely and and on a theme so broad and so vast and expansive and generative as you know feminism and uh, feminist thinking there's absolutely no way to cover anything in it in any like really specific detail and so what I, I what I wanted to do was give a broad introduction to the issues that I think feminist organizing is helping to address at the ground level and for me that's how I kind of thought and came up with what exactly the chapter titles were gonna um Uh, be about and I really wanted to include in there not only obviously things that seem obvious things like the state reproductive um, justice but also things like artwork talking about like the way that feminists have used art um, as a, as another way, as another tool to help us um, denaturalize oppressive structures or help us denaturalize the way that we're living, etc. That to me seemed as important as the, I guess, the more obvious uh, chapters as well. And the book itself is is a really creative work. Um, 
it's really impassioned writing it's beautifully crafted and the book itself is a really a really creative piece of writing it's poetic where it needs to be to convey its passions it's really clearly argued and I think that's important as well is it stands in a legacy of personal political writing feminist writing particularly black feminist writing that has been incredibly attentive to how to use language to communicate and I'm thinking about obviously Audre Lorde but also Gail Lewis who I know you quote in the book and who Mm. uh, you've also recorded a podcast with Mm. and this idea of the the kitchen table conversation that brings together organizing and intimacy in chapter Mm. one you mentioned the kitchen table as a kind of emblem mm. for how these conversations and how to find a tone to write in um mm. and you also use interviews all the way through with mm. other young organizers and young artists um burley fisher readers will be particularly uh, aware of Montaza mary whose mm. pamphlet has been like one of our number one titles in the last <laughs> few months uh right, and it's so. like, exactly excited to see her in this context recognized for her her voice and her activism did you always know that you wanted to have these other voices alongside your voice and how did you find the relationship between them absolutely I think like feminism in the way that I think about it is is obviously and in the demands that it makes is a collective project right so I knew that there was no way that I could write this book without also including the the voices of organizers on the ground the voices of, of people that have helped to clarify for me my thinking um, and the direction that I wanted to take as somebody who wanted to write about um, feminist organising. And I really like the point that you made about legacy. That's that's always also something that I'm thinking about. It, it's kind of wild to me to be situated even rhetorically in the same legacy as like Gail Lewis and, and all of these incredible thinkers that have really given me a steer and a lens through which to analyse the world. But I think that there is a way that being invited into those kinds of, of legacies puts you in conversation um, with people whose organising you've admired and whose theoretical contributions you've admired. And I guess what I wanted to do was um, to to provide another entryway for other young organisers or thinkers or anyone who's beginning to think critically to be, yeah, to, to be opened up to the things that they've said in the most kind of minute way. And I say in the beginning of the book that if this book makes you pick up another book or if it makes you uh, research more into organisations like OAD, the, uh, the Brixton Black Women's Group, people like Gail Lewis, Adia Hartman, all of these thinkers that have been so crucial for me, then it's done its job, right, as, as a starting point or a starting kind of engine. And it's incredibly generous in bringing us into your experience of reading and organising. And there's a lot of really vivid descriptions of it, of live events and of conversations on Mm. and realizations the kinds of things that we can't access right now except Mm. digitally and as I was reading in this particular situation and circumstance I was thinking how important the liveness of a lot of what's been happening in organizing is you mentioned Sisters Uncut protests their occupation of Holloway these are things that happen in in the physical world Mm. and I'm wondering what you're seeing changing at the moment how these incredibly resourceful even if exhausted groups as you point out in in an early chapter the unpaid labor necessary to keep movements like this alive was is mm. incompatible with the demands of wage labor and now also mm. possibly with with caring responsibilities like mm-hmm. what what are you seeing what are you hearing that is finding its way in the new structures that we're and strictures um you know more extreme policing what's mm. happening i think that feminist um organizing 
as you say, has always been incredibly um, resourceful. And, and one of the things that for me makes it such a generative frame is that it's incredibly adaptable, right? So even if it is kind of situated in the home or outside of the home, wherever it is, it tries to kind of bring others in, number one, but it also tries to like make the case for a liberated future or, or another way of living. And I think that the way that that's the way I see that happening with groups now is through um, kind of networks of care, which again is embedded and a core principle in a kind of feminist ethos right that we don't just think about ourselves as individuals but that we we care for for other people and that we recognize that everybody has a claim to a livable life and everybody deserves that regardless of who they are and I think what's happening now is that we're seeing organizing structures move primarily online but also that they're gearing up using a political education because a lot of people are obviously in in this time scared anxious feeling a a number of things and I think what organizing uh, groups are doing really well is providing people with critical information that says look at the way in which the state and the government um, and all of these structures that you have been told to rely on are abandoning you or have abandoned um, mm. you and have historically never catered for or or cared for specific sections of society so what what then do we have to fall back on what we have to fall back on is that yeah the power that we have as collectives and that is related not only I guess to like interpersonal relations that we have to people the idea of like bringing your neighbor food if they're sick knowing your neighbor speaking to them I've got loads of young kind of feminist friends who are organizing within their buildings and just making sure that their neighbors know who they are and how they can help right I think asking yourselves questions like do the people that live around me have a network of care and if not how can I help how can I inject myself into that or how can I help them build that network of care so that they are not alone you know and Mm. are not and are not made more vulnerable by um, the times that we're living in. I don't want to say more than any other frame of thinking, but I think that 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 instinct, um, that tendency towards like love and that tendency towards the other and the tendency towards care and building in that way is deeply foundational to what feminism offers us, I think. And I think also bears out the, the point that you make in the introduction and that the book follows through on that feminism isn't an abstract theory it's a lived practical theory um are there any groups that you particularly want to give a shout out to right now who are helping organize some of that mutual aid or could you use the help or support from our listeners uh yeah i would give a shout out to sisters uncut which is a feminist direct action group who work against all forms of state violence they're doing sort of work around political education but also carrying on a lot of their organizing around holloway prison and what happens to, to holloway uh i'd also shout out cape which is a prison abolitionist organization that's doing lots of great work around making people aware of the the status of prisoners during this pandemic and putting pressure on um, individual MPs and the state to release prisoners as a means of public health. I want to give a shout out to Swarm, which is a a sex worker advocacy organisation who currently have a fundraiser out. Obviously, we know that sex workers and loads of other marginalised workers are particularly hit hard by the circumstances that we're in Um, and so donating to them would be great as many sex workers have lost their income. Alawa is an organization that works for Latin American women uh, around gender-based violence. Those are kind of organizations that come to mind when we're thinking I guess about this but also I think uh, what this time is really making me think about is how communities and community organizing that often 
I guess doesn't have a collective face or name or isn't easily Googleable, um, is holding communities together. So all of those mutual aid groups that you know mm-hmm. understand the political principles of what mutual aid asks for us, you know, um, which is solidarity and not charity, amongst other things. They're doing incredible work, keeping people together, making sure that people um, who are sick have access to information, making sure that they have food. And so I really want to also kind of highlight that kind of work that goes kind of uh, unnoticed, I guess. Thank you for for all of those. And those that have names and websites will add to the liner notes. But I also really appreciate that call to Mm. pay attention to what's going on around you and, and what you might see that may not be forming itself into an organization but just doing doing the work and in a, mm. in a way that's one of the places the book ends up um I'm thinking about the penultimate chapter that talks about food politics mm. and not just in terms of our individual bodies relationship to food which mm. uh, you do discuss and a you know a brilliant critique of anti-fat politics and the way that it's racialized and the way that it's classed but the concept of nourishment that you bring up which is a word that I sort of underlined lots of times and and wrote down because it that seems to in a way sum up a lot of how your book is talking about what critical feminism can be for us Mm -hmm. and how it can help us understand our relationship to ourselves and to each other which is through the idea of nourishment, not productivity or practicality or instrumentality, but acts of nourishing. And that chapter then also links that concept to indigenous land rights uh, and the, the way that they are being persecuted and mm. removed as well in the figure of Berta Caceres. So now seems like a time when we're being mm. pressed a lot to think about nourishment and to think about instrumental relationships to our bodies, to think about hierarchies of which bodies valued um and I just wanted to give you an opportunity to expand maybe a bit more on that on that idea of of nourishment and where it comes from for you I guess the way that I'm thinking about nourishment is as a way of sustaining yourself uh not only physically but politically um artistically and I think at the very beginning of the book I kind of out I do this like an imagination um experiment where I'm like imagine a world like this and imagine a world without borders imagine a world um where everybody has access to the resource that they need uh, and a number of um kind of other things and I think that links really well to the idea of nourishment because I see feminism as a nourishing tool and I see it as a, a nourishing framework that might help us get there right and so nourishment is tied very much to our ability to imagine and to sustain and remain kind of generative as people who have ideas and or as people who believe that we should be living in a different way and also I think being you know just the the conditions of a pandemic bring to the four issues of like food inequality that I kind of talk about in, in the chapter in a very very harsh way right like people who have been trying to feed their families under a regime of austerity and because of austerity have been failed and are failing to to do that are put in even more precarious situations when their income streams are being jeopardized by this pandemic when they're also probably also frontline workers who are also thinking about how they're going to feed and sustain their families and so I think what this moment is calling us to recognize is that we're, we're kind of in a process of ongoing disaster right that this is this isn't necessarily like a catalyst moment 
that this is mm. that the catalyst I guess is a result of a slow build in which nothing has ever been equal for lack of a better word but that there, there have always been deep deep inequalities embedded in the very structures in which we live and in the food that we eat and in how we eat it and in who eats it and where we eat it and all of those things and yeah what this moment is showing us um, is that there are conditions that exacerbate that to a point in which it it's no longer tenable for some people, right? Um, and that's what we're seeing in loads of people responding to uh, stockpiling, responding to the ways that people are talking and, and thinking about food. And also, I think in that chapter, I kind of talk about how food is much more, it, food has to be about the conditions in which food is produced as well, right? So it has to be about land. It has to be about about borders and the fact that lots of, of people who, uh, who work in uh, fields and who work in, in food industries actually don't have that many rights as labourers. Lots of agricultural workers, the majority of whom are women across the world, don't have access to laws or access to structures that might help them demand better rights as workers. And so all of these things are connected. And finally, that maybe if those um, conditions of, of producing food were transformed or changed, um, that the way that we feel about food and our bodies as um, people might also change, right? Because the, the, the chain of exploitation in a way has been broken, I guess. In that incredible. I'm just having shivers <laughs> listening and thinking how much there is for us um, who may not be uh, frontline workers or food service workers to learn from the organizing of people who have worked in appalling conditions. I'm thinking about Cesar Chavez and Rigoberta Menchu and the tr long tradition of farm workers organizing even when they are in permanent crisis and permanent disaster mm. and whether that may be a, a way to help us have continue doing that future logical thinking that you were talking about and that you talk about through the book that you say that by choosing a feminist politics that is critical you're making a commitment to a world that has not yet been built yeah. a world other people will tell you you are foolish to believe in that's from the introduction mm -hmm. and often in situations of disaster people have a tendency to say no we have to be realist don't think about futures that's just you know that is silly and childish but yet there are people operating in all kinds of humanitarian crisis conditions without labor you know without any provisions people in the prison system people in refugee camps mm. who are also thinking about futures and book does is call us to learn with them and learn from them mm. there's a question in here somewhere or maybe just just join in and shut me up i think that um you're absolutely right and i think we see, I, I think a lot about how the world that we live in really stunts our imaginations and it stunts our imaginative capacities across the board, really. And I think that like, so yeah, what I think about a lot is how the world that we live in stunts our imaginations and stunts the kind of demands that, that we make. And I think that that's becoming clearer in, in the pandemic when people are talking about the number of deaths that this country might expect as if it were some kind of abstract figure, right? People are like, oh, mm -hmm. 20,000 people dying. That's that's good. And I'm like, oh my God. To me, that is the the perfect kind of example of how hegemonic thinking really like makes us devoid of empathy, right? That we might turn preventable 
absolutely preventable deaths into abstract figures that that are thrown around and that and that we can sit in people who have a, a relative level of stability might be able to sit in their in their homes and not think that there is something deeply deeply wrong and unnatural about the prime minister going on television and telling us that our loved one will die whilst he you know, mm. for for our, however um, long refused to put the measures in place that might protect those people and i think what feminism or at least what feminists or critical feminists are is alive to that empathy right they're alive to to the instinct that something is not right about the way that we're living at, at the at the most basic level um and i think maybe maybe these times exactly as you say these these times are asking us to think alongside people who have always and inevitably been in the breach right or have always mm. or inevitably had the, the closest proximity to violence those those thinkers and those ways of living teach us that it, it's not so much that there was a pre-covid and a post-covid right there has always been some level of suffering that is constant and ongoing but that is easy for a, a specific subsection of people to ignore and I, what i really wanted to i guess do with the book is to is to make the case that what feminism asks us to to do is to say that nobody's suffering should go unseen and that nobody should fall outside of the equation of our care or the scope of our protection that we have to find a way to really think with everyone right and not you know assign or co-sign the people who are in prison to the realms of the not thought about or the unthinkable or and, and yeah and not and not you know co-sign whole swaths of the population or whole groups of women to the realms of a problem or to the realms of something that throws a spanner in the works and in that i'm particularly thinking about trans women and sex workers in the way that they're spoken about by liberal feminists within the mainstream kind of like arena of representation as problems and as moral problems which I think is so intellectually dishonest and I guess the argument that I'm trying to make is for a, an entirely different frame of thinking in which those groups uh, the, the most quote-unquote marginalized groups are central to our thinking and that we think alongside them essentially. Absolutely. And it does seem like, in some ways, the globally shared, although asymmetrically experienced, moment of the of COVID bringing all these crises to a fore does feel like a, a new radicalisation and a new need for critical tools and also opportunities to be really honest about what is necessary to us, what is what is wasteful, what we all know is wasteful, but now we have to be honest about mm -hmm. and I'm going to use that as a really really obvious segue to the joke section of the Birdie Fishers mm -hmm. Isolation Station podcast where we ask you with this new awareness in mind uh, of what is non-essential what is going to be your first toilet paper book the first one to go when uh, supplies are no longer available um I think I would say as a very, a very bitter English student who was constantly told that maybe they should have done sociology, um, I would say Harold Bloom's entire, oof, his entire canon, I guess the, the Western canon by um, Harold Bloom as a critic, I think. 
the meta canon yeah. you just like the whole thing start it, the whole thing it's a lot of toilet paper yeah i know the whole western canon yeah no and no. <laughs> the entire western canon no no, no. howard bloom's book the western canon right um but yeah i think uh, uh, i guess to maybe say something actually useful um <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people have just breathed a massive sigh of relief. <laughs> yes, I can use that because going um, I think that in the in my university education, I had to do a lot of unlearning when I experienced critical thought, and I had to do a lot of thinking about what I see as useful thinking, um, useful knowledge production. And for me, that kind of knowledge production is uh, investigative. It is thinking about. Um, ways to alleviate suffering it is thinking about exposing machineries of exploitation etc so I chose Harold Bloom because he does none of that but also like the entire school of resentment I think is about uh, repositioning an authority or a dominance to a specific kind of western canon which I think is very boring um yeah so (laughs) that's that's why I've, I've used that but there are whole there are whole swaths of um, you know, w- white male philosophy that could go, in my honest opinion. Yeah. <laughs> so what would be second? I'm, I'm going to get myself in trouble, I I, <laughs> I feel like. That, that is the whole point of this, <laughs> if you hadn't noticed. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, yeah. We'll see how many more weeks we put on and we can revisit it oh, absolutely. in a little, a little while. Well, I, this has just been absolutely um, incredible and incredibly energising and and expanding which i think at this kind of stir crazy point is what we all need just new or renewed renewing frameworks mm. to think about where where we are and how it as you say is part of the world we've always been in mm. but perhaps we're becoming more open to an experience of of solidarity mm. so thank you so much lola um we hope that in the months to come we will have the book proudly on our shelf <laughs> fisher please but for the moment people can can order it from us yes um drop us an email on podcast at burleyfisherbooks.com and do check out the the other podcast for more which is on Pluto press's page for the book um so thank you so thank much you. for joining thank us. you so much for having me well i think i hope the first of of many conversations for you about the book mm. and have a great weekend you too Okay, wow, what a phenomenal conversation, as promised. I know the discussion was kind of couched in feminist discourse, but I feel that all of the talk about the activism work that can be done, all of the kind of theoretical talk, it kind of spreads out in all these different directions. And I know that all of our listeners, well, I hope that all of our listeners will be inspired to make some changes in their local communities. Um as a result of that talk, because there was just so much to think about, so much inspirational ideas and and solidarity, I think so, at, at its core. Totally. I think one of the cases that Lola's book makes really strongly is that treating feminism as if it were a niche theory, only mm-hmm. concerned with questions about capital W women or women as a group or a class is one of the ways in which the radical work of feminism it gets silenced or erased mm-hmm. and at its core feminism has always been in conversation with and contributing to um anarchism socialism yeah. mutual yeah. aid many yeah. of these ideas 
took their form from feminist groups or in discussion with feminist groups and Mm -hmm. that is I think what's exciting about feminism interrupted is it refuses the interruptions of either histories of left movements which write out the contribution of feminist anti-racist activists or histories of feminism which try and make it mainstream and centrist So it's doing both, and that's also, I think, a tribute to its placement in Pluto Press's Outspoken series, um, which published one of our recent Bernie Fisher faves, J.J. Bowler's Mask Off, Masculinity Redefined. And they also have a a fantastic book uh, called Split coming out about class politics, being part of that series, part of that conversation, what Pluto does um, for left thought is really indicative of the strength of the book and the connections it's making. And I'm also just going to give a shout out Pluto is an independent press they've got a patreon to help make sure that they can keep publishing these books on radical and often unpopular topics so if you've yeah, got a little a little bit to direct to them uh buy the book if you can support the patreon if you can check out what else they're doing yeah and spread the love either way and yeah i can just reaffirm like it's wonderful to hear a voice bringing feminism back to like it's radical mutual aid anarcho core um, totally. which many people have tried to steal from it. Um, so thank you so much again to Lola for coming on the show. Um, and thank you so for delivering a wonderful conversation. Vive la révolution. Vive la révolution. Um, so we've got some cool stuff coming up soon. We've got some really fascinating chats. We've got some more internationale publishers, some people from New York, some people from Australia. Um, and some people closer to home as well. It's almost like the culture of books connects us. (laughs) (laughs) And allows us to communicate important ideas with each other. (laughs) On that poignant note, I think we'll leave you. Goodbye from me, Dan Fuller. Goodbye from me, Somaya. Love and blessings, everyone. Bernie Fisher, represent. Out. Burley Fisher's Isolation Station was brought to you by the team at Burley Fisher Books. Your hosts today were Dan Fuller and Somaya, joined by Lola Ulafemi. This show is produced by Dan Fuller, with music by Anthony Hurley, aka Dear Brother. Enjoy the sun if you can, and if not, tuck yourself under a blanket and enjoy a good book. We love you all. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>